Uh, scripture this morning is from uh, Revelation chapters 21 and 22. We're starting in Revelation 21, verse 22. This is the word of the Lord. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has uh, no need of sun or moon uh, to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life." Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need, need no lamp of light, uh, uh, no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the, the beautiful vision of the city of God, we get here in the final words, um, final chapter of your holy book. And Lord, we pray that uh, these words would inspire us, that uh, this is the city that you are building in the earth. And Lord, we are so grateful that you have already made us a part of the city. And Lord, we long for this city to to expand and to build and, and grow and we long uh, to be your servants in, in that uh, important and essential work. And so would your Holy Spirit now teach us, the same Spirit who gave this vision to the Apostle John, would he now instruct us of what this means for our life and our church and our community. And so, Lord, we open our hearts to you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we are in our final week uh, studying the book of Revelation. We've been studying the book of Revelation for uh, three summers, and uh, this is going to be the last passage that we're studying together. And I think uh, this passage that I just read to you is, is one of the most important in the Bible for teaching us what God envisions for us as a church, what we are to be as a church. And the picture that this passage gives is that the church is a city. The church is a city. And uh, what the Lord is saying in this passage is that um, this city that his son Jesus is building, uh, he is building in the earth. The heavenly city is becoming an earthly city. And uh, the church, who we are as the community, the Bible says, is a bride. And if you read it in the beginning of the Bible, uh, it says that, you know, when our first parents were made, Adam was created. And then... Uh, his bride was given to him as a helper. You know, it was not good for the man to be alone, so he had a helper. And so when we are the bride of Christ and we understand Jesus is building a city in the earth, 
Our job as the bride is to be his helper. We are helping and partnering with him in the work of building the city in the earth. And so if we're going to be helping our husbands build his city, we need to know the plan. We need to see the blueprints. And basically what this passage is, is giving a picture. It's a picture of the future, but it's the future that we're moving towards. It's the, the end of the city, what the city looks like when it's all built, and we're building it now, and we're moving toward that picture. And so we need that picture to shape what we're doing now as we partner with Christ in the building of the kingdom here in Bellingham and Whatcom County. And so today, what I want to do is point out four qualities about the city of God from these blueprints, from the plan that were given at the end of the Bible. And this is what the four things that we learn about the city of God are in this passage, is that the city is filled with God, the city is filled with teaching, the city is filled with culture, and the city is filled with healing. Four things that we see in this passage. The city is filled with God, with teaching, with culture, and with healing. And what it tells us is that what we are at Christ Church Bellingham is we're a small city planted in the middle of Bellingham, the city, the city of man that's around us. We are called to be the city of God, planted in the middle of the city of man. And, uh, and we are an alternate city. We're built on a different foundation. We have a different culture than the culture around us. And so today we're going to learn, learn about four of the most important qualities of who we are as a city. And I think it really gives a vision for who we are here at Christ Church Bellingham. So, all right, four things this morning. And the first is this, is that the city is filled with God himself. The most important thing about our city is that God is here. And you see how this passage begins in verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, this is an interesting verse because basically what it's saying is that when God builds his city in the earth, it's not going to have a temple there. And, uh, and that's, you know, especially in the first century when Revelation was being built, there were all these cities around the Roman world, these great cities, and all of them were filled with temples. I mean, that was the heart of the city, the center of the city. And of course, the most important temple was in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was God's holy city. And uh, Yahweh, God of the Old Testament, his temple was in Jerusalem. And actually what we've read about in Revelation is that in 70 AD, that temple was destroyed. There is now no more earthly building where God dwells. And so the church now is a city that's spread throughout the world, and we don't have a building where God is contained. And then it makes this strange addition in this verse where it says, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. What does that mean that God is the temple? Well, the temple is like a house. It's where you go in, it has walls, it has a structure, and God is saying, I am the house. I am where you live. I surround you. I protect you. And that's what Jesus says, you know, about his disciples. You are to abide in me. You're supposed to live in me, surrounded with me in God's presence. And so the most important thing about the city of God is that it is the place where people encounter and experience the living God and begin to live in him. The most important thing about this place is that come, people come here to experience 
and know God. And in fact, it says something even more amazing later in this, in this passage. You see down in verse 4 of, the next, of chapter 22, it says they will see his face. It's incredible thought. You know, of course, this is talking about in the future, we'll see God's face perfectly. There's some kind of perfect vision of what God's, you know, I don't know exactly what that means. God is invisible. Um, but Jesus does say that if anyone has seen him, they have seen the Father. And so already, when we study who Christ is and we know Christ, we are beginning to behold the face of God. And so people come to this city to experience and know their creator. And I'll tell you why I think this is an important place to start when we talk about building the city of God and how we're partnering with God, Jesus, and building the city. is because I do think that we are called to build a city here in Bellingham and in Whatcom County. And, uh, you know, some of you have heard me talk about that. I've talked about it in sermons. I talk about it in conversations that maybe I've had with some of you. And one of our members, uh, you know, has said, well, you know, it's a lot of work to build a city. And that's true. I mean, you think about people who came to settle in the West, and they're like, you know what, who started Bellingham or started Linden or whatever, and they're like, we're going to start a city here. I'll tell you, that was a lot of work, and it's all hands on deck. Everyone's got to, you know, we're going to need the smith, and we're going to need, someone's going to be the the sheriff, and someone's going to be the mayor, someone's going to be the preacher. We're all going to play a role to, to build this city, but I think what's important is that in the ancient world, there were these great and glorious cities And those cities were built on the backs of slaves. And the starting place for us in understanding the city of God is God wants us to know that we are not his slaves. He's not going to grind us into the ground so that he can build his glorious city. He wants us to know we are his children and that we live in him. And so when it says there's no need for the sun or the moon, you know, that God's glory is shining on us, it's basically, it's like in the same way that you feel the sun shining on your face and you feel the warmth on your face on a sunny day and you know when it's been dark in Bellingham all winter and finally the sun is out and it's that somehow we would experience God in that way his love and light on us he knows me he delights in me and he he accepts me and embraces me this city is filled with God himself and he is the best part about it not what we can produce or do or make or build And when this passage says that the Lord God is the temple, what it's saying is the center of the city of God is the liturgical life of our church. You know, what we do here every week when we come together and we're a community and we we confess our sins together and we sit under God's word together and we sing praises together and we pray together and we eat at the table together, all of this, this liturgical act is the center of the city's life where we meet with God and he washes us and he forgives us and he teaches us and he feeds us. All of these things, he is intimately caring for each one of us here. And so the city of God is a city whose communal life is formed through the worship of the liturgy, what we do here every Sunday. And this act transforms us from a collection of individuals into a city. So first... The city is filled with God himself. That's the greatest gift, is experiencing him. It's the best part about it. And he wants all of us to know and experience that more than he wants us to work for him. He wants that first, okay? 
But you might hear that and think, well, okay, this is a city where people come to experience, you know, like we're just hanging out and experiencing God. It's like a vibey kind of place where, you know, there, it's kind of ephemeral and where there's spiritual things happening here. And actually, God's city is far more sturdy than that. It's not just vibing an experience of God, but there's something much more concrete happening in this passage. And so that leads to the second point that we see in this passage is not only that the city is filled with God himself, but second, that the city is filled with teaching. The city, one of the hallmarks of God's city, one of the centers of his city is the teaching that happens there. That's what makes the city what it is. And you'll notice the importance of light as an image in this passage. Look at verse 23. Where it says, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Now, in the Bible, light is an image for the truth. You know, the, the truth has a clarity to it. And it exposes, you know, lies are in darkness and the truth is in the light. That's why Psalm 119 famously says that God's word is like a lamp unto our feet. It is a light. And Jesus says in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, and, you know, following Jesus means you obey what he says. You obey his word. You do, you know, what he's commanded. You listen to his truth. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so, a huge part of what happens in this city and what happens in the Christian life is teaching. And many of you experience that. When you become a Christian, there's a lot to learn. You know, there's a big old book you got to read, and there's a lot you got to learn about. What does that mean? And we got to learn from each other, and we have discussions. A big part of the Christian life and a big part of the church is teaching, and the teaching is the light of the city. And so I want to show you two things in this passage that that teaching does, okay? The first is, that the teaching shows us how to live. The teaching shows us how to live. And you notice again those words in verse 24 where it says, by its light the nations walk. It's an amazing statement that the light and teaching of the church is the, teaches all the nations of the world this is how you live. And basically what it's saying is that nations of the world, places like Bellingham, Washington, need to learn how to walk. And, you know, what it means to walk in the Bible, when the Bible talks about walking, you know, when do you walk? You just walk all the time. Walking is a way of describing, like, everything you do. I walk at home. I walk at church. I walk at work. I walk in my neighborhood. I, it's, it's a way of saying your lifestyle, everything about your life. And so everything about our life needs to be shaped by God's word. And so this city is a place where people learn how to live, how to be human. It's the place you come to learn how to be human. And this is one of the most important convictions of our church is that we believe that the gospel applies to everything about life. Jesus' lordship and rule leaves no corner of our lives untouched. Every part of our lives the gospel is related to. It doesn't matter. Is your marriage? Does your marriage need the gospel? Big time. I mean, how do, you, how do you learn to love and forgive and serve one another in a marriage without the gospel? You need the gospel. It's the point of marriage is to point to the gospel. Or parenting. How do I raise children and teach them about how to love God and serve them in the world? You need God's word. You need the gospel. Sexuality uh, is a huge, you know, people in our culture say you do whatever you want sexually. No, absolutely. We, and we're lost. And we need God's word. We need the gospel to teach about sexuality. My work. My work, 
How do I do my work to serve God and for the good of my neighbor? I need the gospel to teach me about that. My emotional and psychological life, you know, all the things that are stirring inside of me, you know, that I'm talking about in counseling. Do I need the gospel to shape all that? Absolutely. It speaks to all of it profoundly. The arts, music, movies are telling stories about the world and the meaning of life. We deeply need the gospel in these things. How do I spend my time? How do I order my life? How do I spend my money? How do I process the suffering I'm experiencing and disappointment? How do I deal with the conflicts that I'm having with people? This is all the stuff of human life, and there is no aspect of human life that does not need the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what the church is in society, it's where human beings come to learn how God has made them to live. Where else does that happen? Where do human beings go to find out this is how you be human? This is why I'm even here. That's what the church is. And so the structure of our ministries should reflect that. That people should learn here everything. You know, why do I put so much emotion, weight in my work? How should I think about my work as a Christian? How should I write a budget? How should I discipline my children? How can I learn to pray? All of these, this is why we have a school here, is because education is about forming human beings to prepare them for living in the world and serving God. And that's what churches do, is to prepare people to live in the world the way God intended them. And the nations of the world will look to the church for answers to these questions. That's what the first thing, and so the church needs the teaching, and the teaching about how do we live, how do you be human, and that comes from God's word and from the gospel. So that's the first thing, is the teacher's teaching shows us how to live. But there's a second thing that the teaching does in this passage, is that the teaching also guards the city from evil. Teaching is meant to guard the city. And you'll notice there's an interesting tension in this passage. Uh, you notice verse 5, how it says, And its gates will never be shut by day. Its gates will never be shut by day, which is basically saying the city is open. Anyone can come in. Everyone is welcome. And uh, this is an expression of the church's hospitality. The doors are not closed. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter where you came from. You are welcome here. Outsiders are welcomed. Sinners are welcomed. You are welcome to come here and meet God. And the world needs to know that. The doors of this, the gates of this city are open. And it's open all day long, anytime you want to come. But notice what it also says, even though the gates are open, verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Not anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then you go down into the next chapter, it says in verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And so the image of this city is it has these open doors, but the open doors are guarded, uh, making sure that nothing unclean comes into the city. And actually, in the passage just before this one, if you, there's a description of the city, and it says there's 12 gates, and at each of the 12 gates, there's an angel guarding the gate. And, uh, and the word for angel in the Bible is a messenger. And if you actually go to the beginning of the book of Revelation, it says that Revelation was written to seven churches in, the, in modern-day Turkey in the first century. 
And each of those seven churches had an angel that was leading the church. And Jesus addresses the angel at each of the churches. And you find out in one of those letters that actually those angels die. And so you realize, oh, these aren't like spiritual angels. These are, you know, heavenly angels. These are humans, these angels, who are leading the churches, which means who are they? They're the pastors. The pastors are at the gate, and they're supposed to guard the church with the teaching that nothing unclean comes into the city. And so it's the responsibility of pastors to sit at the open gates of the city and welcome people in, but also have the courage to confront anything unclean that would come into the city. And the way that we do that is through our teaching. It's not by fighting people. It's by simply speaking to people what is true. What's true about God's word, what's true about their own lives, about their own sin, maybe truths that no one else will tell them. It's by shining light into darkness. And what the world thinks love and hospitality and open, you know, having an open city looks like, the world thinks that looks like you must accept me just as I am. You affirm everything about me, and you don't ever make me feel even the slightest pang of shame about anything I do or feel, and especially around questions of my sexuality. That's how our, our culture thinks. That we th- that's what we think true hospitality is. The Lord says, absolutely not. It doesn't work that way. Whatever sins you have done in the past, they can all be washed. The blood of Christ will cover all of them. And you can become clean and you can be welcomed into God's holy presence. But the Lord will not leave you the way you are. You must be transformed to be a part of the city. And you have to be willing to be transformed. You can't say, I'm going to bring all my detestable and false things and lies into the city. And it's the guardians of the city, the teaching of the church that keeps the church, guards the church from evil. And so we as a church somehow have to communicate to the community around us both these things. That on the one hand, the community needs to know the doors of this city are open. You are welcome and wanted. There is life here. You There is the face of God here. You can come behold the face of God here. But the light of Jesus, his teaching, will shine on every part of your life. And you can't have some little corner of your life that is like, this is my little precious over here, and I don't want God touching my precious because this is the area of my life that's mine and it's not his. Uh, The city is ruled by Jesus Christ, and his presence fills the city. And it touches every part of who we are. So, two things. The city is filled with God. God wants you to know him and experience him. And, uh, and that's the, the most precious thing about this city is him. He is here. But second, the city is also filled with teaching. It's teaching that teaches us how to live about every aspect of life being shaped by the gospel. And the teaching also guards this city from evil that would try to come into it. Okay? But if the teaching of Jesus touches every aspect of life, it's not just every aspect of my individual personal life. It's actually every aspect of human society that is touched by the gospel. And so that leads to our third point is that the city is filled with culture. So the city is filled with God. It's filled with teaching. And it's also filled with culture. Now, I think this is an important point because often American Christians, especially evangelicals, tend to have a low and shallow view of culture. You know, for example, fundamentalists over the last hundred years have had a very anti-intellectual 
approach to spirituality and to culture. And because of that, Christians have lost a lot of influence in, in academia because we're just basically suspicious of, you know, scholars and things like that. And so we didn't become the scholars. Or um, even in recent years, when three conservative judges were, uh, justices were appointed to the Supreme Court, there really wasn't an option for an evangelical to be one of those justices. There's not, they're not evangelicals who are in that role. It's like Catholics and mainline Protestants who would go into those roles. It's because we haven't taken seriously the depth of culture and engaging the depth of culture. Or you look at things like Christian music or Christian films. They're often bad and cliche and the characters are kind of two-dimensional and predictable and you kind of know where the story is going to go at the beginning and or the music is kind of a cheap imitation of pop music with shallow words and shallow theology and as a result of this christians have lost a tremendous amount of cultural influence but historically christians have not been this way and uh, this passage has this incredible statement about it, about God's vision for the culture of his city. Look at what it says there in verse 26. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. The glory and the honor of the nations are being brought into the city. And uh, the glory of the nations is the beauty of the richness of these cultures, all their skills, all their wealth, all their stories and music and traditions. And it's not just individual souls that are being redeemed. It is cultures that are being redeemed, the culture of these people. And these, uh, these cultures are not being erased. God is not erasing human cultures and saying, let's just do them away with them. He's redeeming those cultures and bringing the beauty of them to honor God and to glorify him. And so the cultures need to be transformed. And I think it's important to understand how cultures change. You know, there's been a lot of debate over the years about what's the relationship between Christianity and uh, the culture around it, Christ and the culture around it. You know, some people say, well, you know, we need to separate from the culture around us because, you know, the world is, is dark and we are, you know, light and darkness don't mix together, so we separate from the culture. Some people say, no, we're supposed to be in the world. And so we need to be in the world with the culture and mixing it so we're going to have an influence on it. Or, you know, Christ is over the culture and the church should basically, you know, put on the culture, you know, kind of have authority over the culture. And, um, or we should be transforming the culture. And so which is it? Well, a culture is simply the collection of human artifacts. That's what a culture is. An artifact is something that is made by a human. A, a culture is the collection of the artifacts you know, among a people group. And the only way that you can transform a culture is by making an alternate culture. And actually, I read an article recently by the historian Robert uh, Louis Wilkin, who made the point that historically Christianity has been a culture. Um, you know, for a thousand years after the fall of Rome, there was the building of Christendom. And many evangelicals say, you know, I don't believe in cultural Christianity, which means people who don't really have a relationship with Jesus, but they're kind of just on the outside cultural Christians. But Christians have built cultures. And, and now as many aspects of our society, the foundation of our society begins to erode, I think a lot of people are saying, you know, a little Christendom would be kind of nice, a culture that has been shaped by the gospel because that's what we want. That's what God wants. And so we are called to make a culture that glorifies Christ on everything from a small to a large level. So that means if you're a woodworker and you 
make, you like to make tables or make cabinets, you know, those things are culture. Those are artifacts that humans make, and God intends you to make those for his glory and for the good of your neighbor. It is a part of his kingdom. Or if you're a homemaker, there's hardly anything that's more rich than the culture of a home. You know, there's food, there's decorating, there's, there's rhythms of life, there's stories that are told, all these kinds of things. There's clothing, all these things that make a home. A home is a rich culture. When you, it's the foundational culture of a society. We need to write music, start businesses, and build institutions. And there's so much more that we could say about this, but I'll just say this. Your spiritual life is not just about having quiet times and coming to church, these spiritual activities. It's about all the cultural artifacts that you make throughout your life. God is using those for the building of his kingdom. And so what we've seen so far is that the city of the church is filled with God's presence We are not just slaves, but he wants us to know and enjoy the beauty of his kingdom, and we should feel that as we are a part of the city. And this city is filled with teaching that teaches us about every aspect of life to live in light of the gospel, how we are to live, and it's teaching that guards the city from the the evil that would try to come into it. And the city is filled with culture. The glory of the nations is being brought into God's city. There's one more thing that I want to point out from this passage that's a hallmark of God's city is that the city is filled with healing. The city is also filled with healing. And these are just some of the most beautiful words in the whole Bible. You see what it says there in verse 1 of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. So in the city, our city, there's rivers of living water flowing through it. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you something amazing. Jesus says that if you are in him, if you are in Christ, you have rivers of living water flowing out of you. And you need to know that about yourself because, you know, I, one of the things I hear all the time is about how bad the church is. You know, the church just throughout history has just been harming people and abusing people. And there's all kinds of, you know, the world is littered with people who have just been hurt by, you know, the church's power being forced or things that people did in the church and things that people said in the church. And I'll tell you, you know, is there abuse that happens in the church? Absolutely. The Bible says that's going to happen. That's why those angels are supposed to be at the gate to confront any evil that happens. And the church has to be willing to do that and to speak, uh, speak the truth. But, this is, but to say that the church is just filled with abusers and harming people all the time, that is not my experience at all. I'll tell you, I, I didn't grow up in the church. And um, one of my first experiences going to church, I became a Christian when I was 17. And I went to the youth group at the church that someone invited me to. And it turned out at the youth group were a bunch of kids that I bullied before I'd become a Christian. And I was like, oh, man, oh, you guys are Christians, and what are they going to say to me? And what do you think they said to me when I showed up at church and said I'm a Christian? It was like I'd never done anything. They're so excited to welcome me, and they became my friends. And they said, let's, let's, how, let's be in youth group. We were so glad. It was like nothing happened. They just forgave me. I mean, the most decent people. And then I've been in countless churches and my experience of Christians are they're immensely decent people. And, you know, we talk about Christians or the church as this abstraction. 
But I want you to think of the people that you know that are Christians. Like, name them. And that you work with, that are in this church. And say, are these just people, you know, they're sinners. We're not perfect. But who are really trying to love people and do what's right and honor God. You know, I want to ask people in Bellingham that. You know, people in Bellingham talk about the church as oppressing people. I want to say the people that you know that are actual Christians, I want you to name them that you work with. And tell me that they're, that they're really just hurting people all the time or that their real desire is to love and care for people. That is because you have rivers of living water coming out of you. Jesus has said that. And this is not a place where Jesus is harming people. This is a place where Jesus is healing people. That's what's happening here. We need to believe in the church. And uh, you see what it says there in the second part of verse 2 there. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. People come here to be healed. God brings people here to be healed. And what strikes me about this passage is that in the city, there's two things happening. What? There's teaching and healing. And of course, those are the two very things that mark Jesus' ministry. Just a couple of days ago, I was reading the Gospel of Matthew, and I read this summary of Jesus' ministry. Listen to the teaching and healing. Matthew 4.23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them and great crowds followed him. Jesus was teaching and healing and he was healing both physical and spiritual brokenness. And so what does this mean for us if the city of God, the church, is supposed to be filled with healing? What does that mean for us? Well, I'll tell you, it's because of this that Christians invented hospitals. You know, the, the first hospital is likely was made by Basil of Caesarea, a uh, fourth century church father. I'm going to read you a description of this institution he invented. Basil was familiar with the healthcare system that had arisen among the monastic communities, but when he became bishop, he undertook a more ambitious project to build a freestanding institution that would care for the sick as well as the needy. The new foundation located on the outskirts of Caesarea was a large complex that included medical facilities for sick staff, uh, for the sick, staffed with nurses and physicians, living space for the elderly and firm, a hostel for travelers, a hospice for lepers, who had been driven from the city because of disfigurement, a church, and a monastery. According to Gregory, Basil cared for the lepers not only in word, but also in deed. Now, I'm not sure what this means for us at Christ Church necessarily, but historically, the church has developed institutions for education, for teaching, right? Because that's what we do. I mean, most of the colleges in our country was started by Christians. Actually, as late as 1870, all of the university presidents in the United States were evangelicals. The first president of Western Washington University was an elder at First Presbyterian Church. And if you go to St. Joe's Hospital and you read the history on the hallways, there's this, I think there's a picture of these two nuns who come up in the late 19th century to Bellingham. I mean, you imagine coming to Bellingham in the late 19th century. There's nothing here. It's just dark and wet, 
is a brutal place to come to. And these two women come and they start a place of healing. And they, then they've, 10 years later, they start doing surgeries and having surgeries there. And it grows into this institution of healing. Uh, Christians have done this all over the world. And I believe that the church as a city needs to begin building these kinds of institutions again. And specifically, the care of bodies in medicine has been divorced from the care of the whole persons. And, you, you know, you can talk to Christian doctors. They'll meet with people and who say, got all these physical problems. And the doctor is thinking, you know, you need the Lord. Like, this is a more holistic problem than just this physical. You need a church. You're alone. You need a community. You, you need to learn how to live. You need God's word to teach you how to live. This is a holistic care that needs to happen. You need prayer. You need loving people around you. And you might wonder, well, am I saying, well, uh, does that mean we should start a hospital? Maybe. I think if the Lord wills that. Or maybe a counseling. You know, counseling center is not just a physical healing. The emotional and psychological healing is a huge issue in our culture. But this passage says that when people come to the city of God, which is the bride of Christ, they should find healing there both physical, emotional, and spiritual. Now, I believe that God wants this city I've described to be in every land across the world, a city filled with God's presence, a city filled with teaching where people learn how to be human and how to live, a city where the teaching guards the people from evil, a city that's rich with culture as the people are making artifacts of all kinds of culture that glorifies God, and a city filled with healing where broken human beings come to be set right again. And so how does a city like that come about? Well, there's a great verse in Hebrews chapter 11 where it talks about that Abraham looked into the future and he was awaiting the city. And the way the city is described is the city whose builder is God. And I'll just tell you our strength, our wisdom, our ingenuity, our ingenuity, you know, cannot build this city. We're too weak. It's the power of God. It's a city that we should pray for. Jesus says, it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And it's something we should pray for, that the Holy Spirit would move and build this city among us. And may we trust him as we partner in building the city of God and as we look forward to when the perfection of this city comes in the future. And then it will be our eternal home. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful vision, both so inspiring and so daunting to us. We know that you've given um, us the treasure of the gospel in, in jars of clay. We feel ourselves to be jars of clay um, frail, um, easily broken, weak. And yet you give us this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And so, Lord, we're here to worship you because we love your kingdom. We love this vision. And we pray that you would move among us and give us hearts to trust you as, as we take the gifts and graces that you've given to us and offer them to you that we might be instruments of righteousness in your hands. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.